What is up, freaks? It's your boy Marty Bent here to introduce this week's episode with Jared Dillian, who is the author of The Daily Dirt Nap, a great uh, newsletter on the markets and a macro perspective. I uh, took a trip. I had a wedding in Charleston over the weekend. I uh, hopped in the car, drove up to Dirty Myrtle Beach uh, last Thursday night and sat down with Jared in his office uh, to talk about uh, Bitcoin uh, traditional markets, his thoughts on the Fed and uh, uh, libertarianism and a bunch more. Um, this was an interesting conversation. I very much thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, this episode of Tales from the Crypt is brought to you by the Cash App. You freaks already know all about it. If you do know about them uh, and you are listening to this podcast and you have not downloaded the app yet, what are you waiting for? Download the app. Use the code StackingSats. That's S-T-A-C-K-I-N-G-S-A-T-S. Uh, you're going to get $5 and then $5 is going to go to Owls Lacrosse, a charity very near and dear to our hearts. And then you're going to get, uh, all the functionalities of the cash app, uh, their boost program, which allows you to go to partner merchants, uh, when the boost is enabled to save money. I used it at Whole Foods yesterday at my coffee shop this morning. Make sure you're active on the cash app before you're walking into these places. It's easy to forget, but if you, it feels good when you don't forget, save myself a dollar this morning. I am going to start, uh, roasting my own my own coffee don't worry freaks um, on top of that you can buy and sell bitcoin you can stack sats you can send sats off the app to a personal wallet from a personal wallet to the app you can send uh two other people on the app uh, and get really creative with it um so check out uh, the cash app today use the code stacking sats this episode of tales from the crypt was also was also it is also brought to you by casa uh casa is working hard uh to create products that uh uh, secure your Bitcoin uh, and make your OPSEC better. So if you want to question CASA, their team, uh, about their best OPSEC pra- practices, reach out to them at uh, membership at team.casa. Ask them your hardest questions when it comes to OPSEC. Uh, they have tiered services for their multi, multi-sig. So they have packages. All memberships come with a full set of hardware wallets for your multi-sig plus the Casa node, the Casa node 2 just came out. So it'll be coming with that Faraday bags and early access to all future Casa products for serious hodlers. They have a diamond and platinum membership that net you 24 seven VIP service, dedicated client advisors and custom onboarding and OPSEC plan. They will walk through you, uh, hold your hand through the process. If you're someone out there who, who, uh, is a little timid when it comes to approaching the technical side of Bitcoin, Casa is here to help you. So use the code TFTC to get up to $250 off your Casa membership. Um, and again, uh, you can check that out. Or again, I haven't told you this yet. You can check that out at keys.casa slash keymaster. Um, and then on top of that, again, you can email them at membership at team.casa uh, for a free demo and have them put you through the hardest offset questions. Hope you guys enjoy this episode with Jared Dillian. I had an incredible time with him. Always good to get back in Dirty Myrtle Beach. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. It's your boy Marty Bent here in a very foreign studio in a place I haven't been in a while. We're actually in Myrtle Beach, sitting down with a fellow freak, the author of Street Freak, Money and Madness uh, at Lehman Brothers. I'd like to introduce you freaks to Jared Dillian. Jared, thank you for joining us. Hey, how you doing? Doing well. Um, I want to thank you for sitting down. I uh, We threw this together, I don't want to say haphazardly, but I was coming down to Charleston for a wedding. A friend of mine, Nick Carter, has been telling me about your newsletter, the daily newsletter, Daily Dirt Nap. He shared a couple with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, your writing is incredible. I'm very envious of your writing style. Um, and you've also been coming out uh, in more in favor of Bitcoin more recently, specifically on Twitter. That's where I've been following you. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I also, I also had, uh, I don't know if you saw it, but I had, uh, I wrote a piece for Bloomberg Opinion. Yes, yes. That came out just a couple days ago. I shared that on a channel that I curate for Dig. It was a very good mm. piece. Um and in that piece, or was that a piece or a tweet? You said you like gold and Bitcoin, but you prefer Bitcoin. Yeah, gold. it was in that piece. Yeah. 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 Why? Why is that? Well, it's, it's hard to get gold out of the country. You know, uh, I look, I'm I'm sort of a paranoid person just by nature. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, we're 
staring down the barrel of an election that is sort of a fourth turning type of election where we have some pretty extreme politics that are running. Uh, and, you know, you, you think, number one, you think about how to protect your assets. And in an extreme case, you think about getting out of the country and what you can take with you. Uh, and there's only so much gold you can stuff in your pocket and take through the TSA. Um, and if you just have, you know, your wallet in your head, you can go anywhere in the world. You know, it's pretty powerful. Yeah, and you were you're saying uh, you were saying that uh, 2017, 2018 particularly was a very bubbly environment, and you stayed away. What what this time around it makes you? Yeah, so basically, I've I've always been enamored of Bitcoin and blockchain, and but my objection to it before now I I am a reformed crypto doubter. Okay, so not not just a doubter but a bear. I was very vocal on Twitter. I was like getting in fights with people. I was trashing people. I was very bearish on Bitcoin, like during the bubble phase in 2017 and 2018. And a lot of people remember me as that person. And so when I sort of did an about face and I said, you know, I'm actually bullish on Bitcoin, people were just shocked. Right. <laughs> but I like I never was against Bitcoin, the technology uh, or blockchain. I've, I what I was against was the sentiment surrounding it. And, and I, you know. Being a creature of Wall Street, I am somebody who pays close attention to sentiment. And when things, you know, we had Bitcoin Jesus and Bitcoin wrappers and people buying Bitcoin on credit cards. And it was a bubble. It was like an honest to goodness bubble. And it popped and it had an 80% drawdown. And we flushed out all the week longs. And now it's for real. Now, this is, you know, this is the real bull market that's coming up. Why do you think it's real? Bitcoin is what I would call in a state of benign neglect. Okay, so nobody's talking about it. Like mentions of Bitcoin on Google and on Twitter are pretty much at all time lows. Like nobody is obsessed with it. Nobody is fascinated with it. The only people left are people who have a real stake. And that is just how I like it, that type of environment. And so let's step back and talk about the macro environment. You want something that you can get out of the country with. What scares you about the macro environment and would make you put money in Bitcoin right now? Um, I'm, not, I'm not one of these people that distrusts the financial system. Okay, the financial system is antiquated. How we uh, you know, clear and settle stocks, how we clear and settle bonds, all these mechanisms are very, you know, they're out of date and they're clunky and they don't work. But I'm not one of these people that says the financial system is um, bad or a fraud or whatever. Uh, I mean, I have lots of opinions about the Federal Reserve. and Yeah, I think it's important, right, to, uh, to distinguish between uh, the financial system and the monetary system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, look, like you can't print Bitcoin. You know, you can't print gold either. You know, and I like Bitcoin and gold, but you can print just about everything on earth and a lot of people actually you know it's funny on my radio show and you know i mentioned to you i have a, a radio show called the jared dillian show which is mostly about personal finance but i had a caller last night and she was from connecticut i don't know who she was her name was karen i remember this and she was very skeptical about bitcoin because what i said on the show was that the average investor should have a one percent exposure to bitcoin and she called in she says it, you know it's uh it's not anything. It's not backed by anything. And, you know, I said, well, neither is the dollar, really. I mean, so we had this kind of interesting discussion on the air. That's something I like to focus on in this podcast, too, is like to understand Bitcoin, you have to understand the current monetary system, right? And how money works in our current world, how dollars work, how the system of money today works. And I've come to find, at least in my experience, trying to uh, speak with people and educate them about Bitcoin that many people don't know what money is to begin with you show somebody a 20 dollar bill you say what backs this eight out of ten people at least in my experience still think gold backs the dollar well we do i mean the federal reserve does have gold on its balance sheet mm -hmm. the gold that is in fort knox but you know the dollar used to be convertible into gold and gold used to be convertible into the dollar and that was suspended in 1971 and so now we have this floating exchange rate world right um and it's um, a flexible monetary system. That was the that was the word I was looking for. Nixon in 1971. Um, 
But, you know, we <laughs> there are some countries that have almost no gold backing their currency, like which is interesting. Like Canada mines gold like crazy. They have all kinds of gold mining on, going on. But the Can- Bank of Canada has almost no gold. There's nothing backing their currency. They're just exporting it all. <laughs> <laughs> well, that so that's a problem. If they, the central banks don't have it on their balance sheet. And one thing. Uh, that we've come to find too is that gold, the gold standard, is bastardized by a physical centralization. So we saw, uh, obviously, the Maduro regime is not uh, something that anybody wants to support, but they did have gold uh, in a vault in Germany, I believe, and they tried to repatriate that, and they weren't allowed. The yeah. system did not allow them. That cannot yep. happen with Bitcoin. Yep. Is that? Uh, and they have Bitcoin. Yeah. Oh, they're using Bitcoin. Yeah. I had a uh, had a Venezuelan, which ra- raises like all kinds of interesting questions. I mean. You know, Venezuela is the bad guys. Let's just be clear. But what they're doing is very innovative. And it kind of raises the question, like, will other central banks have Bitcoin reserves at some point in the future? Yeah. And it's as somebody who's like wants Bitcoin to happen. And and you see that's the crazy thing is like the Internet, the first adopters or pornographers, criminals, whatever. Same with Bitcoin. Bitcoin's a technology that. I feel like Venezuela has been forced in a corner. They can't repatriate their gold. They can't uh, interact with the Swiss system. So they've been forced to use Bitcoin. Like I was saying, I had a Venezuelan on a couple of weeks ago who had a mining operation down there, used to uh, run a mining operation, uh, ditched the country for Canada a few years ago. But uh, he's still very close to people on the ground. And they're saying that Maduro is sending uh, blackmailed individuals to local Bitcoins, which is a peer-to-peer exchange. Uh, with an address for them to buy Bitcoin with Bolivars and send to for the government so they can then buy goods from Russia and yep. China. Yep, yep. Yeah, and so this is te- Bitcoin has enabled this use case for them. It might be unpalatable for a lot of people, but do you, is it a net benefit in the long run, do you think? But- oh, absolutely, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, yeah. Why is that? Um, it's, I mean, look, like I think that... Gold, gold is kind of is interesting. I mean, look, like I've been a gold bug since 2005, okay? Uh, I got interested in gold in 2005. At the, I'll tell you why. Because I was the ETF trader at Lehman Brothers, and a guy from the World Gold Council came by the building, and he said, we're starting up this gold ETF called Spider Gold Shares, which is GLD, right? So that was the first time we like were securitizing gold. And GLD was an incredible innovation. Yeah, gold ran pretty, pretty quickly after that came out. Correct? Well, it did. It from 2005 to 2011, it went up a lot. And in 2011, something amazing happened. The assets under management of GLD actually surpassed the assets under management of SPY, the S and P 500 ETF. Um, but that that actually sort of facilitated the wide scale adoption of people buying gold because before that. You had to go to a, a bullion dealer, either one in your town. There were huge markups. Dealing with physical is a pain. Uh, there's online bullion dealers, but then they're shipping this stuff through the mail. Like it's just a, it's a huge hassle. And this is way, way better, way better. So, yeah, and uh, the things that it can uh, enable, right? Like censorship resistance, so you can send it wherever to whoever. Um, uh, the fact that you can hold it in your brain. These are functionalities and aspects of a, is it a commodity? Like, would you, could, could I would you, call it a commodity. Is it a commodity? Yeah. 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 I don't think I, I look, there, there's a, there's a big debate as to whether uh, Bitcoin is a currency or not. And uh, I, th- I think it might be a currency someday, but I don't think it is right now. It behaves more like an asset. Um, and I think of it as an asset. Like when I buy it, the Bitcoin that I hold, I don't think of this as a, me- a medium of exchange. I think of it as an asset that I'm holding for price appreciation. So I think maybe 20 years from now, we might be thinking of it as a currency. But for now, I think most people think of it as an asset. I would concur. And um, so Bitcoin, the opportunity uh, that exists right now, is it like any opportunity you've seen in your career in the financial markets? Is it similar? Different? Um, I got to rack my brain and think about uh, what I've seen in my career. I mean, look, I think put, I think Bitcoin is uh, at a minimum a 10x opportunity. Um, I, don't, I don't know over what time frame, 
um, two years, five years, 10 years, but I think it's a minimum 10x from here. And then if you get the wide scale adoption, like, you know, if you, if you assume that half a percent of people have adopted Bitcoin and that goes to 5%, right, which is totally reasonable, like I think that's eminently reasonable, then you're, I think you're just going to see that 10x price appreciation. So do you think governments fight back pretty hard against this? I, I think they do, but I don't know how long that takes. And I don't know what that looks like. It's, you know, the thing is, is that Bitcoin is becoming pretty mainstream. Uh, today, I talked to, just coincidentally, I talked to a Bitcoin asset manager uh, who you probably heard of. And, um, and, I, and, you know, they're SEC registered and all this stuff. Uh, we're trying to get Bitcoin ETFs. Like, this is being mainstreamed. And I think it's going to be very difficult for a president, you know, for a president, no matter who, to just by decree say, okay, we're going to criminalize possession of this. Like, I think we're past that point. I think that's really hard to do. Um, so I, I'm not super worried about that. That, well, it's a pretty big, it's a pretty big uh, affront, especially to the U.S. dollar or the U.S. reserve system, right? Like it is, at the end of the day, it will not be the money that we're using as a medium of exchange right now, but over a 20, 30 year time horizon, that's basically the pie it's looking to eat, right? Yeah, I understand. Um, I don't know. I, maybe I'm not thinking big enough, uh, but there's, um, I mean, the, but the technology has obvious benefits that extends just beyond Bitcoin, the currency, right? Like it's, you know, and, and what I talked about before, the plumbing of the financial system, sort of the back office that keeps Wall Street running should be on blockchain, like absolutely should be. So going to trigger a lot of Bitcoiners out there. <laughs> that's what, uh, so that's what a lot of Bitcoiners would think is that the first decade is there's been a lot of confusion, particularly with altcoins and stuff like that. And some would argue that the only application of blockchain technology is a monetary good, a digital monetary good. Like, yes, you can leverage, you can leverage Bitcoin and hash data into it, which probably could be good for back office stuff, but maybe like permission distributed ledger stuff may work for that as well. But you're talking about like public blockchains. Do you think that that will work for like back office stuff or? Uh, I think so. I think so. I'm actually not super aware of this debate. This is kind of news to me. So yeah, yeah. There's a there's a contingent of Bitcoiners that think Bitcoin is, uh, and I probably just over time uh, and experience and more sympathetic towards this view as well is that there's very few things that di dictate the the assurances that you need to make the distributed system that is Bitcoin. Like you need to have nodes that anybody can run from their home. You need to have uh, developers that can contribute to the code uh, at will without anybody saying yes or no. And then on top of that, the costs that come with, with running these blockchains, these public blockchains, um, it could, uh, for back office operations, not make any sense, right? Because mm, the, the mining, because the, the, you, yeah. you have to expend energy to make these systems yeah. run. Um, but another topic that I wanted to talk about, because you... Uh, refresh my brain on it. it was like yeah the, so bitwise etf i believe got denied this week i think it was this week but uh the question of an etf this is the other beauty of bitcoin one of its uh uh features is that you can self-custody really easily if you know how to do public private key cryptography so do you think we even need an etf that people can just custody this uh this asset a lot easier than bullion they don't have to go to a bullion uh, dealer down the road they can simply use the cash app um, need is kind of a funny word I I think that um, people don't have the comfort level with the technology to do that themselves and ETF is ETFs are for dummies right you can securitize anything in an ETF listed on an exchange and people can buy it and there's a lot of people out there that will buy an ETF that will not buy Bitcoin um, so even you know that's why GBTC trades at this massive premium because like there's it's the only product out there that replicates the performance of bitcoin so yeah is that still trading at like a 25 percent premium right now? yeah but the premium used to be higher yeah. like the average premium over time is actually like 43 percent. so it's actually kind of cheap right now relative to history well i think people are waiting for this etf to drop right and if it does the the theory is that that premium will collapse pretty quickly correct probably probably but you know i i've been sort of watching off and on um this saga of trying to get it because I'm actually 
uh, I'm pretty familiar with Banak and what the, they, what they've tried to do with a Bitcoin ETF. And Shout this, out to Gabor. Yeah, this has been um, taking a lot. You know, I'm taking a long time. So yes, it's, yeah, and many different options. So the ETF, uh, I know Banak is frustrated in particular. Uh, on the option side, Ledger X has been waiting for some some options uh, approval from the CFTC, uh, and then as generally, because now is that options on futures or just options? Futures, options on futures. Yeah. Yes, um, and uh, and then you just have the uh, the retail investors waiting for the IRS and SEC to give clarity. Apparently, the IRS gave clarity this week, but I think a lot more people are more confused than ever after the IRS announcement this week. What did they say? Uh, they basically, I mean, that's what people are trying to discern. What did they say? And a lot of people are, uh, uh, so a lot of people are saying that the, the report that they dropped this week dictates that anybody who holds Bitcoin, uh, actually had taxable events, uh, for any fork of Bitcoins, so like Bitcoin cash, Bitcoin gold, Bitcoin platinum, all those <laughs> forks. The IRS is trying to say that if you're holding Bitcoin, uh, uh, those forks just maybe a, a taxable event. But there's a debate. Uh, is it only a taxable event if you claim the fork? If you claim the UTXOs on the other chain, you technically have to download a new software and access your coins with your private key. So you would have to actively go look for it. On top of that, it's very uh, up in the air of like the price of some of these forks. Like some of them didn't even reach like a, an exchange or only traded OTC for a little bit of time. So um, when it comes to taxing, it's it's. It, people are very confused right now are they gonna be forced to pay for all those those forks and those tax well is, i mean are the exchanges gonna have to give people 1099s at some point they do um i know cash app gives a 1099 i know coinbase gives a 1099 there's like exchanges that i've used but when it comes to four coins like so that's a good example like coinbase uh ethereum i don't know if you know this ethereum forked like three or four years ago when they forked 2015 2016 Whatever. They forked, and Ethereum was on Coinbase. And Coinbase waited a year and a half to give their users access to, to the fork coin, um, which is pretty pretty egregious. They, the users could have sold the coin at a much higher price yeah. if they'd given them access uh, earlier. So that's a that's another question. It's another, uh, n- like, weird externality of this technology, right? Like, it's open source technology. Everybody can fork it and just basically... Create, create a taxable event for somebody create a taxable event for somebody or just create uh engineering overhead for an exchange or somebody trying to yeah interact with this technology um but it is crazy um so what are your what are your thoughts on this week in particular on china versus u.s um the 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 corporations getting into the fray now yeah like disney nba I'm supporting it's a, it's a, right a, now. It's a little bit above my pay grade. Um, I mean, look, like you have to, you have to sort of think about what is the purpose of a corporation. The purpose of a corporation is to make money, and that includes the NBA, right? So sh- the, the NBA is a bit hypocritical, obviously, because so you say should the NBA get involved in these philosophical debates about Hong Kong and China? Um, no, they should be focused on making money, which is why they should maintain a relationship with mainland China. The problem is, is that the NBA gets in these philosophical discussions about other things, other political things, causes that it champions. And the reason that it champions those co- causes is because of virtue signaling. Well, capital, be- baby. Be- because they get paid to do that. So it's, you know, I mean, uh, po- lots of people have pointed out the hypocrisy. Uh, I don't think it really changes anything, but... Yeah. No, it's just crazy to see as an observer. You had the NBA, then you had like Blizzard, the, the yeah. gaming company, kicking people off their platform. Yeah, I think, you know, here's the good news. This is actually good news here because a lot of people are freaking out about, um, you know, U.S. corporations supporting China. The good news is that it's very hard for the U.S. to get in a war with China because we are so intertwined. Now, look, it could happen, right? But... Um, I mean, just think about Apple and Foxconn, just for starters, and, and probably every company in the S&P 500 does business with China. We are so inextricably linked with China, um, and there's the, the old Bastiat quote, right? If goods don't cross borders, then armies will, right, if you remember that quote. So I think that you know the tariffs from the beginning, back in 2017, were uh, re- very troubling to me because 
you know, you want to trade with everybody. You want to trade with Cuba. You want to trade with North Korea. Uh, you don't get into a war with somebody that you're doing business with. So what do you what would you say to Trump's argument that we're not getting good deal? Uh, you know, from a trade standpoint, mm-hmm. you know, my my uh, my point to that is two wrongs don't make a right. OK, so like has I mean, sure, China steals IP. Uh, they put tariffs on our goods. Right. We should continue to trade freely with them. We should not, you know, up the ante and retaliate. So that's my view. Yeah. Is That's another thing. May you live in the craziest times. Is it a is it a curse? Like, is this the craziest macro scene you've ever seen in your career? Craziest macro scene? Like just geopolitical tensions. The um, uh, we have currencies falling all over. No, the place. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say no. I've seen a lot. Uh, you know, 2003 with the Iraq War was pretty crazy. Um, you know, uh, I mean, even just a couple of years ago with North with North Korea, like there's been there's a whole there's been a bunch of stuff. I would say the thing that makes 2019 different is that um, you know, first of all, Trump is just different. Okay. Um, and second of all, the news cycle has gotten very short. Like there is so much stuff going on that it's just exhausting. Like over the course of a 24 hour period, you will see, if you're on Twitter, you will see the world focus on like five or six different things. And it is absolutely exhausting. Like I really, I kind of wish we were back in like, you know, 1996 Clinton versus Dole. <laughs> like, like the most the most boring election of all time. Like I really wish things were boring again because they're not boring right now. Just wait till Hillary gets back in the mix. Yeah, I talked about that today. Did you? Yeah, I what, did. What'd you say? It's not. It's 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 that has to be one scenario that you consider out of a range of scenarios that she runs again. And honestly, one of the things I've been saying for years, is polarization has been increasing for like the last fifteen years. The right has gone further right. The left has gone really further left. And what I've been saying is that one of these days, somebody's just going to drive a truck right down the middle. And I think we reached peak polarization two weeks ago. God, I hope so. When, two weeks ago? Uh, yeah, I think so. Particular- when when Bernie Sanders was announcing 8% wealth taxes, and he said we were going to put rich people on a secret government registry. Okay. So when that happened... Uh, I mean, that was that was shocking. And I but in hindsight, I think that was peak polarization. And I think that there's going to be a a pretty there's going to be a lot of people clamoring for a centrist Democratic candidate. Maybe Hillary. I think Pete Buttigieg is is going to become more attractive here in the future. Um, Mayor from Indianapolis. Yeah. uh, South Bend. South Bend. Yeah. 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 No, it's I hate it. I hate the whole election cycle. I can't. I I'm one of those people who doesn't vote. I think the the political system is uh, defunct. I also don't vote, but I do donate. Interesting. Why is that? Uh, it's more effective. Interesting. I just noticed your honey badger don't care. <laughs> Jared has a honey badger don't care. It's for the cause. He's got a sign on the wall. You don't vote, but you donate. It's more powerful. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, to PACs, to to do you donate to PACs or actually just to uh, maybe it's too personal. Uh, no, I, well, no, it's okay. I don't mind. Um, in 2016, I donated to Gary Johnson and Bill Weld. Was very happy to do that. Yeah, and the libertarians can never get their stuff together though. And that well, that was that was their chance. Yeah. That was their one chance. I thought I thought Ron Paul had a good chance in 08. Um, no, he never had a chance. No, no, no. Damn, but. So that's like so. I'm 28. I've I was a senior in high school in 2008, and I just so happened to be as you freaks who are listening right now have heard this story ten times. But I was taking an economics elective class as the world was going to shit, and uh, as a 17 year old sitting in a, a senior in high school watching this, watching TARP, we went through TARP and read all the bullshit that got put into that bill, and then went went. To See, c- you're one you're one of the millennials that I talk about on the radio. What's that? Because. Uh, you distrust the financial system because you watched it implode when you were in high school. I don't distrust. See, that's the thing. I don't, and I've worked in finance. I don't just distrust finance. I do distrust the financial system a little bit. Uh, what I about think, stocks and bonds? Uh, no, I never invested in those. See, that's my point. Yeah. <laughs> well, 
<laughs> certain certain stocks, certain stocks. Maybe like maybe if I had. Oh, sorry, getting a little. I assume we can edit it. Yeah, we can edit it. You still hear it? All right, 26. Not, uh, will I ever? Well, that's the thing. I'm 28. Bitcoin exists. Why would I invest in stocks and bonds if Bitcoin exists? The the potential upside for that is, seems way, uh, way more lucrative than, than the well, stock market. Well, I mean, it, so so I'm a, so I'm an old Wall Street guy. So I don't think, just in terms of returns, I think of things in terms of risk-adjusted returns. Okay, so I don't just care about the returns. I care about the volatility. And actually, you know, I didn't mention this, but one of the things keeping me away from Bitcoin in 2017 wasn't just the bubble stuff, but it was the volatility. And I still don't like the volatility. I don't like that I got flushed for 20% last week. Like, that's not fun. You'll get used to it. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, it's, I, you know, I actually said in my Bloomberg piece, I said maybe the volatility is a feature, not a bug. Um, so, uh, you know, I just, ha I just have to adjust my risk parameters. Well... Would you agree that the world's trying to price a new monetary good for the first time in potentially millennia? And volatility should be expected, right? Like, you have a bunch of monkeys looking at this new slab, like, from 2001 A Space Odyssey, and they're looking at it like, what the hell is this? Trying to determine what it is, let alone price it accurately. Yeah, yeah, I'm getting, I'm getting, I'm getting used to it. I mean, basically, you know, you just have to set a stop loss at zero and a limited 100,000 and just write it out, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so... How are you trying to trade this market? Are you are you actively trading it, or are you looking for like a buy hold, um, buy and hold? Yeah, yeah. You're, you're not trading the swing no, or anything. No. Um, what uh, is there any other markets you're looking at, or as excited no, about as Bitcoin right now? I mean, look. First of all, you're having a discussion with somebody who is very early in his crypto career, right? So, like, I don't know a lot about all the other coins. Um, not worth it. Don't worry about it. Well, that was kind of my that was kind of my opinion. Uh, and the reason I say that is because, you know, I was around for the dot-com bubble 20 years ago, and there were hundreds and thousands of dot-com stocks, okay? And 99% of them went down 99% or went bankrupt, and only four ended up doing anything, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Google. That was what survived the dot-com, and they went to be trillion-dollar market caps, Right. But basically, 99 percent of the other stocks disappeared. And honestly, that's kind of my opinion of what's going to happen in crypto is that I mean, maybe not 99 percent, but a lot of these coins are going to disappear over time. I think 99 percent is accurate. Uh, yeah. And it's already happening. Uh, and that was the crazy thing. So I don't know if you know about Barstool Sports. Yeah, of course. That's where I was working when uh, the 2017-2018 bubble was going on. And I was mm -hmm. in that office. I was Bitcoin Marty. I was the Bitcoin expert in the company. And it was crazy standing there. I'd been at Bitcoin for four or five years at that point and watching everybody go crazy. For we, the we, after, after the podcast, I'm not going to be a pig. We're, we can have a discussion about bar, Barstool. I want to have that conversation. We can do it here. <laughs> no. We can talk about it on this podcast. Absolutely. I'm 45 years old. We're not doing this. <laughs> <laughs> but just uh, as somebody was in it, it was insane what everybody like. Everybody in that office was just going for anything with a coin on the end of it, anything with crypto in the beginning of it, not knowing at all what it is and the ICO bubble of 2017 in particular where the Ethereum blockchain promised uh, everybody a world of tokenomics you're gonna have utility tokens for everybody that uh, that has come to earth over the last two years in particular and I think that was maybe the biggest hype that we'll see for like altcoins uh, at least in the first couple of decades yeah yeah and it's um, yeah what would your advice be so you, I'm still like I don't want to say triggered, but like in the back of my mind, I'm going back to that comment of you're the uh, tw you're the high schooler uh, who watched the world burn down and doesn't believe. No, I mean, I mean, you're you're not, I want to say generation. I sound like uh, I sound like uh, um, like Dan Rather. But, um, you know, I but people in your age group are way more susceptible to invest in Bitcoin than people in my age group. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? You think that's not good or bad. It's just that you ha my comfort level is very high in traditional financial instruments, stocks, bonds, commodities, stuff like that. 
And I, it took me a long time to get some degree of comfort with crypto, you know, and you, like I said, because you live through that period in history, you have a distrust. Maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but you know, that's uh, accurate. Yeah. You have a distrust of the tradition of traditional financial instruments. And, um, and so I'm getting up to your level of trust in crypto. And what I encourage you to do is you get up to my level of trust in stocks and bonds. How, how would you advise I go about that? Like what path should I take? What should I focus on? Um, I, you know, the thing with, look, there's, I, I think of things in terms of optimal portfolios. Okay. And since I'm also a personal finance guy and I give advice to regular people about what kind of portfolio they should construct, uh, I advise that they have a portfolio that's very heavy on bonds. And the reason I do that is because it smooths out the volatility in a portfolio that has mostly equities. So if you ask the average person on the street that had a Fidelity account or an E-Trade account or Vanguard or something like that, they would have 80% stocks or higher. And I constantly encourage people to take that number down and add a lot of bonds because it's, it, it smooths out the volatility in that portfolio. Having said that, you need some assets that have a lot of potential upside. You know Nassim Taleb, right? Yes. Okay. His work. So Taleb uh, is Fooled by Randomness 20 years ago, right? My favorite of his. Yeah. So at the end of Fooled by Randomness, he, he talks about how you should manage your money. And he says 90% of your money you should have in safe things and 10% you should have in moonshots, venture capital, Bitcoin, things like that. And that's basically how I live my life. Yeah. Well... That's the thing for people in my age group. It's so hard to, number one, invest, and then number two, create a diversified portfolio, especially if you're living in New York City like me, um, where it's impossible. Uh, not impossible. I mean, I'm able to save and invest some money, but it's not your average millennial is, is not in a spot to, to go build up a big stock portfolio right now, I would argue. I don't know. I mean, I, 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 what are you saying? You're poor? No. <laughs> No, but I'm saying a lot of a lot of kids my age, I still the, the kids. I mean, like you work you work at a company, you have a 401k. Like, I, I assume you contribute to the 401k, right? No, I don't. Do you have a 401k at your company? No. Okay. That's a, yeah. That's another thing. Like, those are dying. A lot of them aren't matching. Nah, eh, they're not really dying. And you don't need them to match. Even if they don't match, it's a huge tax benefit. You contribute nineteen thousand a year, which means it's like a five thousand dollar tax benefit. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. This is this is becoming an interesting. I feel like I'm I'm getting a getting a life lesson here sitting with you. <laughs> but it's uh, it's it's interesting. So for me, and I'm focused on Bitcoin. So I'm probably I'm talking about like the average millennial. I'm not your average millennial. I'm f- hyper focused on Bitcoin. Um, but again, investing outside of this realm, I, I'm not as comfortable with it. And especially, how could how can you advise investing in stock market while it's at all-time highs and you have the Fed back into a quarter, a corner uh, with very few tools from which it can back itself out of this? I mean, I, it's it, it, Fed or no Fed. I don't, I don't like the stock market here, and I don't like the bond market here. I think that all financial assets, stocks and bonds, I think all financial assets are overvalued. Yeah, so we shouldn't be investing in them right now. Uh, but you still kind of have to. Because we don't have perfect knowledge of what's going to happen in the future. Stocks could go higher. Interest rates could go lower. Do you think, what do you think happens? Do you think we go to QE4 without uh, calling it QE4? Yeah, that's kind of happening already. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, you know, I'm actually, even, even with tenure notes at 1.6%, I continue to be bullish on bonds. I think interest rates are going to go lower. Probably negative. Here in the States? Yes. What, but what happens if that happens? Like, isn't the Fed basically admitting defeat at that point? Who's going to put up with negative rates in the United States? Uh, it's I don't I don't really think of it in terms of putting up. I mean, first of all, you know, when interest rates go down, somebody wins and somebody loses, right? So if you're a borrower, you win, and the U.S. government obviously wins. I mean, Trump has been you know harping on this for. A long time. He explicitly has said on Twitter that he wants the Fed to lower interest rates so he can lower U.S. borrowing costs. It's pretty insane. That's right? absolutely insane. The fact yeah. that you had the president 
tweeting at Powell. Yeah, uh, and the Fed's supposed to be apolitical. And by the way, let me just institute. let me talk about since this is a crypto podcast and people care about this kind of stuff. Let me throw out a nightmare scenario. Let's go. You. Let's jump because into it. we're talking about Ron Paul. You mentioned Ron Paul in 2008. What does Ron Paul say about the Fed all the time? And the Fed baby. and the Fed. OK, so now it's 2016. Trump is president. Let's say we ended the Fed. What what do we have in its place? I don't know. You'd, you'd have to have a controlled demolition of the Fed, right? And transition. To what we else. have in its place is a president with arbitrary and unlimited power to set interest rates unilaterally. But so the function of monetary policy would be handed to the government. Yes. Is that what you're saying. Yes. Okay. So what I'm saying is, is that the libertarians, and I am a libertarian, the libertarians like Rand Paul audit the Fed and the Fed very foolish in this environment because if you get rid of the Fed at least makes a pretense of maintaining the purchasing power of the currency they at least they make make a pretense at it what Trump wants is what Erdogan has is basically unlimited power to set interest rates yeah and it's crazy that you have um, Trump trying to devalue the dollar and that's the other weird thing too because the dollar's strong, but it's strong relatively, right? No. Let me, let me, I'm going to. In Trump's words. Yeah. It's, so if you go back to the 90s, okay, um, we were living in a time of strong currencies and high interest rates. So if you remember, Robert Rubin under Clinton was Treasury Secretary, mm-hmm. and he always said, we are pursuing a strong dollar policy. Strong dollar. Every other country in the world was pursuing a strong currency policy. Everybody wanted their currencies to be strong. The Fed had interest rates high, and how we can measure that is our real interest rates were positive. Okay, so don't look at nominal rates, but our real interest rates were 2% or higher. So we had positive real interest rates, and we had strong currencies. Fast forward 20-plus years, and everybody is trying to weaken their currency. It's like a race to the bottom. Everybody is trying to weaken their currency, and we have negative real interest rates. So basically what happens is in the 1990s, in in an environment where you have hard money, okay, is that corporations become very disciplined, okay? If the dollar is strong, it becomes very difficult to export, which means that U.S. corporations have to be very tight on expenses, okay? Now we live in a world where corporations don't have to be disciplined. They can run at a loss. They can be very flabby. And this is the world that we live in. And it is demonstrably worse than it was 25 years ago. Yeah. I mean, if you just look at the number of quote unquote unicorns that exist now compared to 10 years ago, it's insane. Like, I think there was one or two unicorns in 2008. I saw a CB Insights slide, I think, a couple weeks ago. It was like one or two unicorns in 2008. And 10 years later, it's hundreds. Yeah. Is this a. a product of monetary policy in your, your opinion it's a product of a lot of things yeah. a lot of politics uh trade policy monetary policy yeah and what if it all just goes to shit well i mean is that po- like they're are they all racing to the bottom is there a bottom do we ever hit a bottom and basically then- here's here's the here's the case for bitcoin and gold both uh if all currencies are being devalued simultaneously then something that is an objective store of value like gold or Bitcoin will increase in value. That's that's the investment case, period. What about the, the social case? What happens socially if, if if this all if central banks can't figure it out and people lose trust in them? I don't know. Yeah. Are you worried about that? Yes. How worried? Uh, I try not to worry. I, I I try not to lose sleep over it. It's it be, because just, you know, being older, like one thing I've realized over time is that things take a really long time to play out way longer than you think. For example, 2008, the Fed starts quantitative easing. Okay. What did everybody do in 2008? They're like, we're going to get inflation. We're going to have massive amounts of inflation. It's going to happen now. And everybody bought gold. Well, it worked for a couple of years, but it was based on the fear of inflation, but we never we never got inflation. Mm-hmm. Now, like 12 years later, inflation expectations are just starting to turn, but literally like this is like years later, you know, so stuff just takes a really long time to happen. You know, Bitcoin, I wouldn't be surprised if this takes 20 years to play out, way longer than everybody thinks. 
you'd be surprised. Bitcoiners, myself included, think it's going to take a generation or two. Yeah. At least. Because you have to build out the technology. You have to educate people about it. And you have to give them their hands. Um, it is going to be a process, but I think it's worthwhile. I think it could bring a better future, more equitable. Not equitable where everybody's equal or has an equal amount of money, but it's a fairer system in my opinion. Do you believe in the Cantillon effect? The what effect? The Cantillon effect. I've never heard of this. So the Cantillon effect uh, basically dictates uh, the way monetary policy is run, especially easy monetary policy uh, at the Fed creates undue advantages for those closest to the creation of monetary speaker, those closest to the Fed window, right? Because so they're able to take that money at low interest rates, put it to use in assets before... Um, before the pricing has basically reached all the way through the market. And by the time prices have adjusted, uh, everybody close to the, to the Fed window has already invested all those assets. And as prices rise, the people who don't have access to that window just get the inflation at the end of the day. I'll have to, I'll have to look that up. Yeah. I, I've never heard of that. Yeah. yeah. So basically the argument there is that just the, the mechanism of monetary creation, the way it currently is created, is inherently unfair. Um, and then Bitcoin, the fact that anybody can plug a miner into a wall and contribute to consensus and have an ability to um, fight for for Bitcoin uh, on a level playing field is is something that creates, again, equity, not equity, but uh, makes a fairer system at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. Jared, we're about 40 minutes in here. Um I know you, uh, you're a very busy man. You got to write your letter. Do you have to write your letter? When do you write? No, your I, I write it the day before it's already written for tomorrow. Um, do you think I should do that? I usually wake up and write it. Yeah. I write in the morning. Yeah. 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 Let's talk about the letter for a second. Yeah. Let's talk if about, you don't mind. Yeah. Let's talk yeah. about the daily dirt nap, the daily dirt nap. So I've been writing it since 2008. Uh, I left basically I left the day of the bankruptcy when Lima went bankrupt started the daily dirt nap and uh, it's a three page letter. It's a macro ish sort of letter. I focus on sentiment mostly, sentiment, psychology. That's what I'm best at. Um, you know, I talk a little bit about crypto, uh, but not a lot. But it's really about macro and sentiment and psychology and behavioral economics. Yeah, and again, your writing style is uh, something I'm envious of. You're a very good writer. It's very, uh, very concise. That's the thing I love about your letter. It's very concise and you say a lot in very few pages. I am going to give you a gift i'm gonna actually i already gave you a gift i'm gonna give you another gift thank you um this is my second book right here oh i might have to get this one signed too that so that's uh that's actually that's an advanced copy that's a galley so it's got a couple of typos in it and stuff but it's you know it's basically you won't even notice all the evil of this world yeah that's my second book a novel is it out yet yeah it's been out for three years okay i didn't know because this uh Hell yeah. I want to check this out. Thank you. Thank you for two gifts. I come here <laughs> taking your time and leave with a couple gifts. But uh, you said you started the day Lehman went bankrupt. What was that like being around for that? Yeah. Did you um, see it coming or? Yeah. As of about June or July in 2008, it started to become apparent. That, I mean, the stock traded like ass. Like Lehman stock was just it couldn't get a bid. Uh, and we were hearing from our clients, like our hedge fund clients, they were shorting our stock. And they were just like, you guys are, you guys are screwed. You guys are done. So that summer I started looking for a job and I'm like, you know what? That's not really what I want. I want to start the newsletter. Uh, when I walked into work on September 15th, as I, as I was walking, it was, it's in Times Square, uh, on 49th street. And I was walking up the street and TV trucks all around the building. And I'm walking up the sidewalk into the entrance and I got reporters like sticking microphones in my face and. You know, I get up there and uh, basically like compliance just told us we couldn't trade anything. We just had to sit there. And what, what happened was people came to work for an entire week because they didn't have any other place to go. Even though the firm was bankrupt, they kept coming to work. What were, were they? Could they not believe what had happened? Or were they that, just... Partially that. Partially they were kind of hoping that somebody would buy well, what was left to the bank. And that is what happened. On Friday of that week, Barclays bought just the broker-dealer operation of Lehman. Uh, they bought it out of bankruptcy for $2 billion. And so everybody that was a Lehman employee just stayed on as a Barclays employee, but I quit. So, and Are you happy to be away from oh, all that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. How, yeah. how much has your life changed over the last decade? Um, 
things are pretty great. Things are pretty great. Like the, that was a stressful job. You know, that ETF trader job that I was doing, the guys that were doing that were not lasting very long. They were lasting two years, three years, four years. I did it for seven years. And um, that is the most stress I have been under in my entire life. And uh, is it just the fact you have to be up for all market times or just know every market? Just, hand, just handling massive amounts of risk in periods of very high volatility, trading $300, $400 million like on a touch, uh, market ripping around. Like it was, it was intense. It was intense. How do you calm your nerves at that job? I, I mean, I was a mess. I literally, I was just a mess. So, I mean, you, you got the Street Freak book, you'll read about it. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Check out Street Street Freak. Um, check out all the evil of this world. Check out the Daily Dirt Nap if you can. Work at dailydirtnap.com. Yep, dailydirtnap.com. Um, last question I have. Uh, given your experience at Lehman, are you worried that DB is in a similar situation that they were? Or uh, I don't think, first of all, I don't think, um, I think systemic risk is a lot lower than it was before uh, because of regulation. I mean, look like we're, we're not going to have another financial crisis. We might have another crisis someday, but it's not going to play out the same way. And I mean, honestly, like the German government's going to backstop Deutsche Bank if they run into trouble. So, um, you know, Deutsche Bank didn't really have a liquidity issue or a solvency issue. They had a profitability issue which is why they got rid of their equities division because it was just consistently losing money, but it's not a liquidity or a solvency issue. So, yeah. And they have like crazy derivative exposure too, right? You know, I think that people misunderstand the derivatives exposure. Okay. Like a lot of people, because they say, Oh, it's 400 quadrillion derivatives exposure. You know, the notional amount, like the gross amount of the derivatives exposure, it sounds like a big, scary number, but the net exposure is very, very small. And there's people are just misinformed. They look at the gross exposure and they just think it's like a systemic risk and it's really not. All right. It's good to know. Jared, it was great to meet you. Yeah, man. I had a lot of fun. Thank you for inviting me into your office, for giving me gifts, uh, for talking about Bitcoin and <laughs> answering my stupid questions. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, it was great. Thanks. Um, that's all we got this week, freaks. Peace and love.